I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Hey there, spooky nerds, and welcome to Talking Strange, a paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network. I'm your host, journalist, author, and researcher of weird things, Aaron Sagers, also from 28 Days Haunted on Netflix and Paranormal Caught on Camera on Travel Channel and the Max Streaming Services. So seances, paranormal investigations, fortune telling, and other spiritualist practices. We talked about these things on the show before, and they're topics that I happen to love, but these things also define the Victorian era and continue to shape our world today. And in the time of Jack the Ripper, A Christmas Carol, Dracula, and Edgar Allan Poe, spiritualism and the supernatural were cultural touch points. And in the book, Spirits, Seers, and Seances, Victorian Spiritualism, Magic, and the Supernatural, author Steele Alexander Doris explores how Victorians and spiritualists have left such a profound impact on both the past and the present, and how belief in ghosts, fairies, and nature spirits help shape our celebration for All Hallows Eve and Christmas. Let me tell you a little bit more about the author, and then I'm going to bring her in. Steele Alexander Doris is an author, artist, and a Victorianist specializing in Victorian spiritualism, crime fiction, and the Gothic novel. She's a PhD candidate in the English department at Stanford University, where she has taught courses on 19th century spiritualism and ghost stories. And she holds an MA in English from Stanford University and a BA in anthropology from the University of Texas at Austin, which, you know, go Longhorns, I think. Uh, so without further ado, Steele, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. I'm so much about your bio and your research work just speaks to me. So I'm so excited for you to be joining me and uh, and and talking about this book for folks that are watching this on the video, The Spirit Seers and Seances. Great book. And really, I, I know that you could have made this a thousand word tome. So keeping it down to 200 pages, that must have been quite a challenge for you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was much in, in draft form. It was much longer. And then I just have to, kept having to cut it down. And it was really hard. Some of the hardest parts of writing it was really just deciding what made it in, what didn't, and then how to simplify this movement. You know, I'm writing transatlantically, so I'm talking about spiritualism in North America and in the UK. And I'm really covering 70 years, but in certain chapters, I really go out to about 100 years. And so just cutting that down and making it very digestible in 200 pages was sometimes like much more challenging than even just stringing sentences together. I do not envy that challenge because I'm sure, even as I was reading it, uh, I'm sure I could imagine the author, you saying like, but what about this? What about this? I want to put this yeah. in, but then you're keeping, you're having to be very concise, which I appreciate, uh, which also makes it for people that, are familiar with the topic, you're going to learn more from it, but also it's something, it's a great entry point into this fascinating era. But let's, let's talk about your history. What's the origin story of steel? What, what's sort of your background and fascination with this topic and with spiritualism and ghost lore? 
Um, let's see. Well, I started out, I was an anthropology. I planned to be an archaeologist. That was my plan throughout childhood. I was going to be like Indiana Jones, basically, you know. Um, so I ended up majoring in anthropology with a focus in archaeology. But I think I realized partway through my degree that a lot of what drew me to archaeology in the first place was really actually like literature, like text, the Odyssey, Greek tragedy, you know, reading. I was really connecting to cultures a lot through really reading in a way more than these kind of physical artifacts. Although now that I've gone into literature, I really kind of miss the physical artifacts as well. Um, so I ended up switching to English lit for grad school. And I, the 19th century really just made sense to me. I'm someone, I love to dabble in other historical eras. Like there, there's, you know, there's hardly any era you could name that I'm not like fast, haven't been fascinated by at some point. But the 19th century for me has just, I don't know, it's felt like a home base for a while, probably since I was a teenager. I was definitely one of those teens who kind of like cut my teeth on the Brontes and everything. And I've like never completely left them, I think. Um, so the book really came about because I was preparing to teach a class in grad school. I was preparing to teach a class for undergrad English majors on specifically like the genre of the Victorian ghost story. And I love to approach things from sort of a literary, historical, cultural studies perspective. And so I was really trying to link it to spiritualism. And I realized that I didn't know as I was researching for that class that I had just, there was a whole world of spiritualism that I really was like, uh, did not understand. Like I thought I knew about Victorian spiritualism, but there was so much behind the curtain that I had just never, never really thought about, never really discovered. And so the book was really born from me spending all of this time in these kind of archives going through spiritualist newspapers and publications. And um, I had some familiarity with like my publisher, Llewellyn, because I had been reading their books. I was very much like a Wicca teenager as well. So I had been reading their books for a while. And so I think when I was like trolling through the archives and then I was, I was like, this is a Llewellyn book. <laughs> well, for the purposes of this book, you really begin by asking a very a question that I think a lot of people think they can answer, but maybe are not really able to. And it's what are Victorians and what is a Victorian era and the characteristics associated with them? Can you just kind of briefly sum that up? I mean, it's in the first couple of pages of your book. Absolutely. So I'm sort of using... There are a few different groups of people you could sort of be referring to when you refer to the Victorians. I'm using a looser definition of the Victorians, which is what I sort of flag in the early pages of the book. So I'm speaking transatlantically about the Victorians. The narrowest definition of Victorians would really just include anyone living under the reign of Queen Victoria from the late 1830s to 1900. Um, so it obviously wouldn't include the, that narrow definition wouldn't include the United States um, since we were not a colony at that time. Um, but especially when you're looking from a literary history perspective, there was so much like cultural overlap, so much communication back and forth between North America and the UK during that period that there's this kind of cultural, not so much political, but cultural Victorianism, a transatlantic Victorianism. And that's really the sort of loose definition that I'm using. So I'm really talking about not just people living under the reign of Queen Victoria, but also um, North Americans. And I make reference to a couple of like continental Europeans. Um, but I'm speaking more loosely really about kind of anyone in North America or the UK between the late 1830s and 1900. Well, prior to this, we had sort of the 
Georgian period, I believe, correct? And yes. So how would you say that if you were going to sum up the characteristics associated with this time coming out of that Georgian period, or it was, um, I guess, maybe called the Age of Reason somewhat in the U.S., but mm -hmm. the coming out of that time, what are the characteristics associated with this this time frame and maybe even some of the markers that people tend to recognize or associate with uh, Victorianism. Sure. So from a, from a sort of pop culture perspective, two sort of bookends that I use for the Victorian era are basically, as you were saying, there's the Georgian period, which specifically right at the end, there's the Regency. So the Regency is the time of Jane Austen, which is one of the things people always think like Jane Austen, Victorian. She's right before the Victorian period. She's about 20 years before. Um, so any adaptations you've seen of Jane Austen novels, that's the Regency. It's right before the Victorian period. And then if you think about after, right after the Victorian period, you have the Edwardians, right? So that's kind of the time of Downton Abbey, right? So the Victorian period is kind of your right after Jane Austen, right before Downton Abbey, in between. Um, and if you think about moving from the Regency into the Victorian period, um, it's interesting. Some of the things, some of our cultural associations with the Victorians, if you step away from spiritualism, the supernatural, and you just think about generally, if you say like, what do you think when you think about the Victorians? People, they definitely have a reputation for being very kind of um, uptight, prim, prissy, repressed. Repression is a big one. Um, but there's another side to the Victorian era, which is that there was absolutely kind of um, the Regency and the Georgian era very much as a result of scientific advances and also partly because uh, Britain was very, very shaken by the French Revolution. And so uh, the, the Regency sort of prided itself on being, as you say, kind of a time of reason and also more of an emphasis on moderation. You can even see kind of in the fashion, if you think about the clothes and like Jane Austen films, there's not so much the massive hoops. There's not the Marie Antoinette silhouette and there's not like the massive Victorian hoop skirt silhouette. So there's kind of a focus on reason, simplicity. Uh, moving into the Victorian era, you have kind of the return of some of the more ornate fashion and more ornate, um, architecture, interior design that maybe you would have seen um, in like the mid 18th century, kind of before pre-French Revolution. Um, and there's also a real explosion of kind of melodrama is very popular on the stage. Uh, sentimental novels, like if you think about the novel of Dickens, novels of Dickens, there's like a lot of sentimentalism, a lot of emotion. So even though they're associated a lot of times with this kind of like extreme sexual repression and codes of conduct and you know kind of these grandmotherly Victorians there's this other side that they were also you know very kind of emotional maybe more religious in certain ways that's complicated but um and and they had obviously this real turn towards the supernatural in the 19th century which is what a lot of the book is about right and with that we're we're talking a lot about spiritualism and the spiritualist movement. Now, from my perspective, it, it, again, it's a topic that I happen to love. I love researching and talking about, you know, I always kind of sum it up as rather than a religion, it's more of a philosophy that communicating mm -hmm. with the dead uh, is both enlightening and can be a very positive experience. Is that, would you add more to that or is that about accurate from your perspective? 
Definitely. I mean, I think just to add on to that, one of the things that's really fascinating about spiritualism is that it was so, um, it did not have kind of a rigid hierarchy. There wasn't a formal way that you got initiated into spiritualism. You know, if you think about other kind of occult societies around the same time, like theosophy or Rosicrucianism or something like that, you know, there's much more focus on kind of initiation, hierarchies, degrees, that kind of thing. Spiritualism was so DIY and it was very like you could you could uh, attend a few seances, you could, you know, self-identify as a medium. So it was very open and um, and it didn't demand people accept certain strictures or dogma or anything like that, really just beyond people kind of um, being curious about the idea that they could communicate with spirit. Yeah. And even though they're are spiritualist uh, you know churches as it were and maybe reverends there's not really this system in place of there's no no real bishop or pope or as you said a hierarchy yeah and it also took them a couple decades i think to really start building the spiritualist churches so in those first like 1850s 1860s they really didn't even have some of the stuff that spiritualism went on to have like in the 1880s 1890s so it was very kind of you know, wild. Well, we widely consider 1848, the emergence of the Fox sisters as sort of the beginning of spiritualism in the United States, upstate New York, in fact. But the what are some variations that you've discovered between spiritualism in the U.S. versus the United Kingdom and Australia and throughout Europe? Is there any kind of differences that you've picked up on let's see i mean the main thing for my period because i'm much less um i'm much less sort of up to date with what happened in spiritualism after 1920 it's very significant that spiritualism gets started in the united states and then spreads to the uk and then spreads to continental europe um so one thing i know is that spiritualism in the united states spiritualism is sort of political almost everywhere that it went in the united states it was definitely very very overtly political right from the beginning because the decade during which spiritualism really kind of fired up in the united states was the 1850s which was obviously just prior to the american civil war and um two things that really kind of defined that period and then during the 1850s it sort of started moving over to the uk but in the united states um the spiritualist translecture circuit was especially popular. There was a version of it in the UK, but if you think about the 1850s spiritualism, which uh, it's very focused on this translecturing, which is basically mediums, often women, um, would become entranced. So early on, they would often have an assistant who would sort of entrance them. And there's a whole history of trance which i can talk probably talk about in a minute but um they would become entranced and then they would sort of deliver these lectures that were supposed to be you know channeled lectures from the spirit world and so in these early days it was much less about kind of the typical private seances that we would think of and the sort of phenomena at those seances it was very much these larger open to the public or open to those who had purchased a ticket kind of trance lectures and these trance lectures were often very very political people would ask the spirits questions about science about politics about morality about life after death religion um and people would the the various mediums would kind of 
travel around. And so that was like the trans lecture circuit. Um, it was very strongly linked to abolition in that decade prior to the American Civil War and also went on to be uh, strongly connected to later women's suffrage and also kind of movements that, you know, when I was studying it, I didn't even really think had much um had a lot of traction in the 19th century, like early vegetarianism, which when I first read that, I was like, 19th century vegetarians? I wasn't familiar with this part of history. So um, I think in the United States, I would say it leaned perhaps a little bit more political. And because it got started earlier, there was more of an emphasis on this sort of trans lecture circuit right from the beginning. Um, by the time it took off in the UK, which was pretty soon after, but a little bit later, I think there was a bit less emphasis on these bigger trans lectures and the traveling and a little bit more emphasis on kind of the more traditional seances that we would think of and the cataloging of various kinds of phenomena at those seances. So we, we've, we see as spiritualism is kind of picking up that it's filling, crowds are gathering, they're, they're taking part in these either seances people on stage or mesmerism on stage and you know so people are gathering to to witness this maybe partially because of entertainment partially because they're believers maybe they just need to kill some time on a friday night or whatever but yeah. there was also outside of like perhaps sort of tent revivals and whatnot it, it seems like there was a presence of a strong presence of spiritualism in major cities i know you know, I'm here in New York City and where uh, I think two, at least two of the Fox sisters are currently are well, currently are buried. <laughs> I think they're going to remain buried <laughs> for now. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's changing. But and then there were stories of, I think, like the fasting girls that um, uh, that were moving through New York City and some other things. So th this was kind of present within big cities as well. Definitely. Yes. Um, and probably spiritualism seems to have taken hold stronger in the north, in the northern states. Definitely the northeast was a real stronghold. And definitely once medium sort of became more international and started traveling around like any other kind of traveling professional musicians or anyone else, they did tend to go from kind of big city to big city. And so there was definitely, I think, some movement kind of out of like the burned over district or like rural New York into these kind of major metropolitan areas, um, purely for convenience, you know, just like, again, just like musicians, there are larger halls there. It's easier to travel by rail from one to the next. Now, you talk about a lot of characters within the book and and the way the chapters are set up. I, I really enjoy it because you talk about the history, then you kind of break down different elements of of certain topics. And then you also mention notable names and then a, a bit of a how to guide as well. So let's talk a little bit about some of your favorite rock stars in this Victorian era and then, you know, and then within the spiritualism and ghost lore worlds who are some of your favorite people well let's see um two authors i'm owe a major debt to are catherine crow who technically did not identify as a spiritualist during her life um she but she wrote the night side of nature which i think the introduction of the book is named after and originally when i was drafting the book i had like something about the night side in the title and then we changed the title um so catherine crow was a british author who right before spiritualism kicked off wrote this book um ghosts and ghost fears the night side of Na it's the night side of nature ghosts and ghost fears 
And it was like the year before the Fox sisters got started. So it's fascinating because it's like this moment preserved in time right before spiritualism hits the scene of like what the the ghost scene looked like right before spiritualism took off. And so in the night side of nature, Crow, who's very influenced by um, continental, uh, continental European writers, especially she was bilingual and she was a German speaker. So she was very influenced by a lot of German folklore and German um, legends and a, an incident with a German woman, the Cirrus, the Cirrus of Provorst, who um, was sort of one of these early pre-spiritualist figures who claimed to be in contact with spirits and have these kind of visions. Um, Catherine Crow's book, Night Side of Nature, is just fascinating. And she talks about the poltergeist, which is, I think she was the first... Um, the first author in the UK to write about the poltergeist to kind of import it from Germany. She also talks about the doppelganger or the double and there she's using doppelganger, which is another like um, German term. So she was also, it's very interesting, like for anyone who worked on like German 19th century supernatural scene and British 19th century supernatural, she's a fascinating figure. Um, so I owe an enormous amount to her. And then I would also say Emma, Emma Britton, she was married a couple of times. So Emma Britton, she wrote some very important, she was herself, she was a spiritualist and she was herself a practicing medium. Um, but she wrote a couple of really important guides to how to hold a spiritualist seance in right kind of in, in the middle of the 19th century. And those were incredibly important for me because she's very like nuts and bolts. Like, here's what you do. Here's how many people you have. Here's the best time of day to have it. And that was really invaluable for me. And then the last one I would probably say is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who's just, he's like at the intersection of everything that I work on. And he was insanely prolific. He just wrote about everything. So he's, um, he's someone I'm writing about a lot lately. Yeah, I, first off, I, whenever I talk about uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I have to say, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It's it's just you. It's hard to just say Doyle, and you can't just yeah. say and Conan Doyle isn't quite right either. Even though that's what a lot of people say, but so you just say Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And, <laughs> <laughs> but he is such an intriguing character, and kind of bridges that gap into that World War One, the the yeah. kind of the resurgence of spiritualism a little bit later on, uh, and I want to get to that, but. Yeah, the the crow, and I I'm so glad that you're talking about crow and introducing her to folks that may not be aware of her. But it's so cool, fascinating that just at the beginning of this spiritualist moment in the in the U.S. I mean, before it kind of uh, spread across the pond, we have the the nascency of of folklore. You know, yeah. and and track it because Crow wasn't really talking about this is something I believe or not. She was just documenting these things going from wraiths to doppelgangers and and poltergeists and all of this. Uh, so it's so cool that that's also happening at the same time. Any theories as to why? And it's hard to look back and say, well, why was this all happening at the same time? But I'm going to pose the question anyhow. <laughs> It's my, it's my druthers as the interviewer to put you on the spot. Why? <laughs> Why do you think these things were kind of emerging at the same time? I mean, obviously a lot of factors. A big one, I think I talk about it in the book, and it's definitely, you know, scholars have written about it, is that the 19th century was this period, certainly in the UK. It was in the United States as well, but 
in the UK where Crow was. It's this period of massive kind of industrialization, urbanization. You have these factories, more of a consumer culture is being developed. Um, and I think for the, maybe not for the first time, but for the first time for a lot of people, there's this anxiety about loss of the countryside, loss of these myths of the countryside. Um, and just a sense that the landscape is really changing around them. Like we sort of take for granted now, we've just changed our landscape so much. It just looks nothing like it did. But in the 19th century for families who maybe they grew up in a small hamlet somewhere and then they move into London or some other urban center and suddenly they're surrounded by all these people that they don't know. You know, it's, it's a very different lifestyle from the one that their ancestors would have been living for hundreds of years, thousands of, you, you know. Um, so there's a real kind of rupture in a way from the past that's happening. Their ancestors have been living one way in one place for a long time. And then suddenly things are really changing. And one of the reasons I connect with the Victorians is because I think, you know, we're living in this time of like rapid technological innovation. And so I think to us, sometimes the 19th century seems sort of quaint, but for them, it was frightening. And, you know, technology was exciting, but frightening and technology was evolving really, really rapidly. And so I think they had a lot of similar anxieties. And I think this turn towards folklore is definitely part of an attempt to, I think, hold on to the past, to connect to the past. And I think they're really realizing for the first time that if someone doesn't write these stories down, they might actually lose this. Like some of this might really be lost. Yeah, I think there's there's kind of a parallel to be drawn there with, and you do talk about Christmas traditions and you talk about Dickens, but even Dickens, like during a time of industrialization in London, yeah. He's telling ghost stories during Christmas, which is hearkening back to the the English country Christmases of his youth, you know, um, when things were a little bit better for him. So even he is kind of bringing is 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 looking to this time that was lost. Right. Yeah, definitely. Dickens is really fascinating when you think about Christmas, because he had like I mean, Dickens is like everywhere in the 19th century and he played. Like at one level, he's doing what you're saying, you know, he's sort of conjuring up the past, you know, he's, there's this, I mean, literally in A Christmas Carol, there's the ghost of Christmas past. So there's this sense that, um, of touching the past, going into the past, you know, being rooted in the past. But in another way, like Christmas had never before been the massive holiday that it became in the 19th century. And so, and Dickens was very involved in, um, you know, in boosting Christmas's profile, essentially, you know, we always hear about a Christmas carol, but Dickens, obviously, he ran newspapers himself, you know, he ran periodicals himself. And he went on for years after that, he would kind of get other authors together, and they would do like a collection of ghost stories around Christmas. So even after a Christmas carol, he really continued kind of on an annual basis to, um, to sort of push the Christmas ghost stories and organize collections of Christmas ghost stories. And he helped popularize the tradition of giving like books of ghost stories at Christmas. So on one level, he's kind of connecting to like the old Christmas, but in another level, he's kind of doing that to sort of create like a Christmas that's kind of bigger than Christmas had ever been before in a sense, which is really fascinating. And that, that secular yet charitable, you know, goodwill nature yeah. of Christmas as well. So along with these kind of characters there's a lot that you're already familiar with there's a lot that you know people may be aware of but certainly you know uh sir arthur conan doyle but anyone knew that 
you locked on to or maybe even a topic that you kind of locked on to that you just weren't so familiar with that really you wanted to sink your teeth into? Yes, definitely a few. I mean, one thing, he's not the main one, but I'll just name check him quickly because I kind of love him now. Um, Dr. Mesmer, I did not know before I was doing research, really the history of Dr. Mesmer, that mesmerism came from the name Dr. Mesmer. Um, and the entire history of mesmerism is just really fascinating, how it evolves into hypnotism, all of that. So Dr. Mesmer, definitely. Um, but the biggest one I would probably say is really, um, I talk about um, the couple, William and Elizabeth Denton, who are Americans, they're American spiritualists, and they were specifically really interested in psychometry, which I have a section on in the book, but basically the idea that you can energetically like read the history of objects by coming into contact with them. So especially, I write a little bit about psychometry as um, the Victorians thought about using it for criminal investigation. So for example, the idea that you could go to a murder scene, pick up the knife that was used to murder someone and get like a flash of who did the murder, you know, of the murder. Um, and I knew a little bit about psychometry, but I didn't really, the way that the Victorians thought about it is really interesting because they weren't just interested in the idea of psychometry to read about the recent past. They were very interested in psychometry and archeology, span psychometry and geology, psychometry and paleontology. And so, which is partly because the 19th century is the century that all of the kind of ology fields, anthropology, archeology, span paleontology really kind of kicked into gear, solidified. Um, and they were just really fascinated by those fields in the 19th century. So they liked the idea that like you could actually like pick up a fossil and see a vision of the dinosaur, you know, like they were really like the Dentons were really interested in like, what if we can actually use this to be better paleontologists or something. And as someone with kind of a background in archeology span and I collected fossils as a kid, I was like, this is amazing. Um, so it was probably one of my favorite sections to research and write about in the book for sure. Uh, and a tidbit that I was not aware of, or maybe, I don't know, just hadn't hadn't lodged in my brain, but you talk about, I, I was familiar with um, mesmer and mesmerism, but the phrase of animal magnetism really comes from yeah. mesmer, and we're using it in a very different way these days, as yes. opposed to <laughs> invisible magnetic fluids in our bodies that, that controls our health. You So since you mentioned psychometry, you also, throughout the book, you talk about automatic writing, mesmerism, hypno hypnotism, clairvoyance, cartomancy. I can't say it. <laughs> Cartomancy. And there we go. It's like one of those words that you don't say a lot out loud, but you know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so on. So what were some of the kind of break down some of the things that you wanted to highlight and also the, this notion of how to the how to guides how to do it yourself because that's an interesting uh, element to the book so talk about some of those absolutely so i think the first thing i'll say about the how to guides is partly you know my publisher obviously i'm working with them to conceive of the book and they're uh very focused they frequently have how to sections at the back of their book so that was partly something that i sort of knew when i was pitching the book to them would be helpful but also when I was first researching the book, um, I just had no idea. Again, I think my my whole vision of spiritualism, I think 
before I started researching the book really came from just TV series, like Penny Dreadful type TV series and like the dramatic seance scene. And so I had this vision of sort of the drama of the seance, but I didn't know anything about all of the writing that the spiritualists produced, like all of the how-to manuals, the brochures, the pamphlets, the newspapers. So I also really, with the how-to sections, I was like, well, heck, if I can find these brochures that are like, here's how Victorians taught other Victorians to like crystal gaze in 1894. Like why not include those instructions? Like, it's amazing that I have those. I didn't think I would have those. So it was sort of a, just a way to take advantage of this incredible, like all of the how-to nuts and bolts, like archival material that I found. Um, and the inclusion of the fortune telling practices in general is kind of interesting because as I say, basically all of them except psychometry, which is one of the reasons psychometry is fascinating to me, basically all of them except psychometry, they predate the Victorians. So the Victorians just inherited them. They inherited crystal gazing, tea leaf reading, palmistry, astrology, cardamancy. Those were all things that existed in some form before the Victorians. Psychometry is the only one that they really kind of, I mean, I'm not saying they're the first people who ever like picked up an object and got a vision or something, but they named it, they sort of developed a procedure for doing it. So it was very much kind of their thing as opposed to the others, they put their own spin on, but they certainly didn't invent, you know, astrology or something. So um, the fortune telling practices are interesting because they had a complicated history at the beginning of the 19th century. They were really illegal. Um, at the beginning, at the outset of the Victorian era, really throughout most of the Victorian era, they were illegal. Uh, in the UK and in, I think, most, you know, the United States is complicated because every state has its own rules and they're all changing. But in most states in the United States as well, um, fortune telling was sort of like defined as a subfield of fraud, basically. And so um, you could get, you know, arrested, like you could do time for getting caught fortune telling. Um, and then the spiritualists came along and the spiritualists were really fascinated. You know, they had this impulse to study everything, categorize everything. You know, they really wanted to, um, you know, they saw themselves as part of science, you know, part of the cutting edge of science. And so they wanted to study these practices and they were like very offended to sort of be like, you know, grouped in with just sort of these swindlers or something. And so it was very complicated for the spiritualists at certain points because they wanted to investigate these fortune telling practices, um, but they sort of wanted to do it without, you know, ending up in jail. So uh, you can find in spiritualist periodicals throughout the 19th century, they'll sort of be um, outraged sometimes because they hear about someone who was, you know, crystal gazing for money and then got thrown into jail or something. And they're like, this is outrageous. How is this still illegal? It's 1897. This is absurd. And so, so yeah. So, but the fortune telling kind of had to be in the book because it was, you know, really important culturally throughout the 19th century. Just out of curiosity, you do talk about automatic writing planchettes yeah. and the, you know, that those predated talking boards and then Ouija boards. Um, but there's, not a lot of ink spilled on the Ouija boards and talking board topic so much. Was there, what was yeah. kind of the decision behind that? Um, mostly the Ouija board really, it was mostly just a chronological thing. The Ouija board really, um, I'm forgetting the exact dates now, but it was really at the tail end of the Victorian period that talking boards or spirit boards and then the Ouija board itself, as we now recognize it, really, um, became what we would now recognize the planchettes that were used for a lot of the period that I'm looking at before the talking boards were really, you know, patented basically. 
um, were just, there was no board part of it. They just, you fixed a pencil to it. So it was like this, it, it was similar. I know you've already read the book, so you already knew, but um, uh, for, for viewers, the planchette was similarly kind of heart-shaped, but instead of sliding around on a board, it you fixed a pencil to it and so people could all put their hands on the planchette as we would now with a spirit board but they could actually write or draw freehand essentially so it did have a little more flexibility like the talking boards were kind of easier and they sort of commodified it in a certain way uh, but the original planchettes actually gave people a little more freedom because if they were interested in like automatic drawing or things like that you could really do that with the pencil planchettes in a way that you couldn't with the later talking board planchettes so those were more popular during the period that I was, um, that I'm looking at in the book. And then as those kind of fell out of favor, the talking boards suddenly with the planchettes, as we now recognize, emerged. And then very quickly, the Ouija board was patented and they became a phenomenon really quickly and kind of remain obviously really iconic to this day. Yeah. And I've seen some of those automatic writing planchettes um, in person. They're, they're really cool to see up close. And you definitely see like, yeah, these things, they were around before we got to the, um, you know, William Fold and then later, you know, Milton Bradley and Hasbro Ouija boards of planchettes. But the, you know, I often when I talk about the, the Fox sisters, I kind of call them the Kardashians of their time. Um, and you know, sort of reality TV stars that could fill a room or or really, yeah, any kind of celebrity that goes out there and goes on tour, fills auditoriums. And then over time, they face scandals and some folks uh, deal with substance abuse and then the band breaks up. And it's this, even though it happened more than 100 years ago, it's stuff that we can kind of recognize and tap into. Now, from your perspective, was there challenges throughout the writing of the book of sort of wrestling with the entertainment spectacle versus the belief elements? Because yeah. some people really were preying on grieving families, you know, in the wake of the civil war and then yellow fever and the Spanish flu later on. But, but then there was, you know, people were actually believing this as well. So uh, yeah. But did you wrestle with that a little bit? Definitely. Yeah, I think what was complicated because that that part was actually, yeah, it was very complicated while writing, you know, um, a lot of the big names, you know, I talk about the Fox sisters, I talk about the confession later of one of the Fox sisters, and then she recants her confession. I mean, they were it was very it was a very hot mess towards the end, as you talked about. Um, a lot of the big names uh, had scandals. Um, and I sort of was trying to balance two things. And one is I didn't want to leave out like the scandals, the debunkings, the confessions, whatever else. Um, but I also didn't want it to be completely focused on these kind of celebrity figures and their downfalls, essentially, because as much as many of the celebrity figures were, as you say, um, often approaching it from a monetary perspective, like a commercialized, you know, they were sort of there to make their name. And for some of them, you know, the 19th century was a hard time to make a living, especially for women, it was a really hard time to make a living. So some of them, I'm not even going to begrudge them. Some of their, some of them I do, <laughs> but some of their behavior, I won't even necessarily begrudge them as a 21st century woman looking back. Um, but spiritualism was also a movement that attracted millions of people, you know, it attracted, I think, millions, if 
globally millions. Um, and obviously the overwhelming majority of those people were not making any money off of it, right? For them, it was something that they were drawn to for any number of reasons. And so I didn't want to focus so much on sort of the, again, the high profile scandals and the ones who are making a lot of money off of it. And then, you know, maybe confessed later to swindling people. Um, because then I felt like it would um, maybe detract from my ability to cover sort of the, I wanted really with the book, I think, to give a sense of like, if you were a Victorian and you had a Victorian friend who was really into spiritualism, not a Fox sister, not a big celebrity figure, but just an ordinary person who, for whatever reason, is really captivated by spiritualism. And they're making no money off of it, but it's really important to them and they've really become involved in the movement. Like, what would they be drawn to about the movement? What is it speaking to in them? And how are they spending their time in the movement? And I was worried if I spent too much time on, as you say, kind of the Kardashians of the spiritualism movement that I would kind of take away from that perspective. Uh, but it is hard because then if you don't spend too much time on the debunkings, people are like, oh my God, but these people, they were debunked and you don't talk about it. And so it, it's a hard balance. And I didn't want it to become like a debunking book. Um so it was definitely a hard balance. And I think it's one of those things, sometimes when you write something, you just have to accept that like, you're gonna do your best to strike the right balance, but it's not going to be perfect. It couldn't be perfect. And you kind of have to, at a certain point, like detach from it, publish it <laughs> and sort of move on. And I think that's what I had to do with this book. I sort of gave it my best effort. Yeah, and, well, um... <laughs> and we're talking about adding hundreds of pages when you are going through every individual case. That, that said, I just, from your research and all the material that you've consumed, obviously you have characters like William Mumler, spirit photographer, yeah. and by and large, roundly considered to be a, a fraud, even though there nobody could actually prove entirely how he was doing it. Um, but have you seen, so you have Mumler, you have like these cases of ectoplasm, a lot of cases which were like cheesecloth that were dipped yeah. in like oil or whatever and being uh, regurgitated via string or whatever. Any Throughout any of that, do you think that you've encountered either an example of ectoplasm or spirit photography that has left you personally still saying, okay, well, maybe that one, maybe that case right there was actually something possibly legit? Um, ectoplasm and spirit photography are not really my two, like I, I, yeah, the ectoplasm and the spirit. So the ectoplasm became very much a thing towards the end of the 19th century spiritualist movement around the same time that materialization seances, which were when people said that they could like make a full figured like person materialize in the room also became popular. Those were deeply, deeply theatrical. In fact, there's a really good book by Amy Lehman that's about kind of the theatrical side of spiritualism. I can't remember the whole title now. I don't see it on the shelf. But um, and those in a lot of ways were much more, I think, influenced and inflected by sort of Victorian theatrical culture at the time. So it's much more kind of, yeah, it's much more like performance studies theatrics in a lot of ways. Um, and the spirit photography you know, similarly, I think a lot of times when I see those old spirit photographs, I mean, I'm not an expert in photography, but I can sort of, I know something about Photoshop anyway now, but I'm not an expert in 19th century photography, but I can kind of imagine that someone who was would be able to sort of figure out um, 
you know, what was, what might have been done. Um, I think for me, the aspects of spiritualism that I find sort of most fascinating, most compelling are the ones that are a little less focused on material like phenomena, so like spirit photographs and ectoplasm and a lot more of the channeled work, the automatism. I think it's also for me as a writer and an artist, I think I have that experience of kind of getting into creative flow. And even if you're not someone who's interested in like religion or spiritualism or channeling or in any capacity, you know, there are moments when the words are just coming or the art is kind of coming and it feels different from maybe other times that you're working. And so I think for me, the channeled communication, the channeled trances, a lot of that is much more interesting and compelling. And for me, feels more, feels more like you can make a case for it being, you know, a very like spiritual experience versus some of the more outlandish, showy, theatrical stuff. For me, a lot of times just, I can see so many other aspects of Victorian culture that it's kind of coming from that it's less it feels more like a medley of those aspects of Victorian culture and less kind of a spiritual thing. Uh, but the automatic writing, automatic art, and some of the channeled, channeled speech, I think trance and creation is just very interesting to me in general. So we have this boom time and during the Civil War and in the wake of the Civil War where spiritualism is quite big in the U.S. and then and and elsewhere. And then it kind of peters out a little bit, partially due to the scandals and yeah. and maybe people coming to terms with with death or looking at death in a different way actually probably definitely not coming to terms with death but maybe just being separated from it more and more but it, this is slightly outside of the purview of the book but I, i'm wondering if you could help connect the dots to the beginning of the 20th or the 20th century the first couple decades of the 20th century we have world war one we have um, uh, the, the Spanish flu. And then we have guys like Conan Doyle, as we said, that or Doyle, Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, still <laughs> sticking around and that yeah. as this spiritualism experiences a little bit more of a resurgence, cause it didn't entirely go away. Were there major shifts in spiritualism post Victorian era and, were there still, do you still see elements of Victorianism present in this resurgence of spiritualism? Yeah, that's an interesting, let me think about that for a minute. Um, In a way, it would seem like you, because you have someone like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he is, he's bridging that gap and he's kind of bringing his old, his older school philosophies you know, into the into the 20th century, and he's experienced more tragedy, I think, at this point, personally. Um, and his profile is much bigger at this point. He's he's a rock star. Yeah. Yeah. You have this kind of frenemy back and uh, back and forth relationship with Harry Houdini, which makes for great, uh, you know, not not great TV, but great um, newsreels and newspaper clippings. Um, yeah, but. Yeah. Uh, if if there's nothing there, you know, obviously I don't want to force it, but I was just curious if you had any thoughts. No, I mean, Doyle is a fascinating, just going to say Doyle. Say yeah. um, Doyle is a really interesting figure when you're thinking about this, especially because, you know, I sort of wrote about Doyle in two places in the book. I wrote about him in the spiritualism section, and then I wrote about him later in the like fairies, flowers, and folklore chapter, which is not sort of an overtly spiritualist chapter. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting about that chapter is in there, I talk about the like Cottingley fairy episode, which it 
you know, that was like an interesting chronological thing because I really had to step outside of the Victorian yeah. era. I had to step into the late night, into the 19 teens, basically. I had to step into like 1917, 1918, 1920. Um, and normally throughout the book, I really tried to stick to the Victorian era. Sometimes I had to go back a little bit to explain things, but I typically tried to stay out of the 20th century. Um, but with that, I felt like, even though it happened chronologically outside of the Victorian era, like it was such a crystallization of some aspects of the Victorian era, especially like the Victorians got, as I talked about in the book, we haven't talked about it very much, but the Victorians, it was a really interesting time during which their conceptualization of fairies really kind of changed. They had this real fixation with fairies that was part of their like interest in folklore. Uh, but then by the end of the Victorian period, the fae fairies have also kind of gone from these sort of threatening figures to they've almost become associated with children, which is what you see in the Cottingley fairy episode. It's like these children who claim to have these connection with the fairies in the yard. So Doyle is, you know, such a product of like the Victorian <laughs> supernatural spiritualist scene. Um, but a lot of his work and his writing about spiritualism, his kind of major work about writing, um, about spiritualism and the supernatural was done in those first few decades, actually, of the 20th century. So he was really, um, a lot of this work that crystallizes the Victorian supernatural that he wrote, you know, is in those first few decades. Um, I would also say in general, the, the early 20th century versus the Victorian era, the attitude of like mainstream scientific establishments had definitely changed in those first couple decades of the 20th century. Early on in the spiritualist movement, the spiritualists definitely got a lot of pushback from like mainstream scientific establishment. But it was such a time of change and spiritualism was so new that I think they they still had like more doctors and more figures in the medical establishment or in the scientific establishment who were curious at least or prepared to kind of hear them out after those scandals like the fox sisters and there were a few other high profile ones in the late 19th century and also by then spiritualism had been around for a while um mainstream uh medical and scientific establishments really kind of ran out of patience with the spiritualist movement at that point <laughs> So the first few decades of the 20th century, you're seeing a lot fewer kind of doctors and scientists with academic backgrounds kind of prepared to entertain spiritualist ideas. There are still some, but it makes them much, much more fringe even than it would have in the 19th century. So that like gap between mainstream scientific establishment and um spiritualist inquiry is really widening and you can really see that in the first few decades of the 20th century yeah i mean like it would with doyle is like he was by the time we enter into the first few decades of the 20th century he's able to flex a little bit with his celebrity yeah. and that's when he starts writing about it but also being a big booster behind certain mediums that ended up you know either getting pretty roundly discredited or what I, you know, the, it's like all the drama that was happening was suddenly higher profile because media was expanding at that point as well. Um, and then I guess, I mean, you really have at that point sort of the emergence of the, and you talk about this, the, the ghost hunting groups, the, you know, yeah. uh, uh, Institute for psychical research, right. Uh, in London yeah. which is still in operation. Like, so these so-called learned gentlemen and whatnot that are exploring what is now known as the paranormal. 
Yeah. Um, it's, do you, uh, let's kind of jump ahead a little bit because you note in the book that although there was some association between re religious groups, religious, um, you know, organized religion and spiritualism, by and large, there, there wasn't too much, you know, you could be yeah. a Christian or I don't know about a, if you're a Catholic and still observe spiritualism. Church was not so into it, but people are still doing it. And then you look at a millennia or not a millennia, a century later, not a millennia, and you have the emergence of like Wicca and fascination with the yeah. occult and then you have very much organized religion coming out, stoking moral panic and satanic panic. Yeah. Um, I guess my question related to that is like, why do you, why would you think in the old timey times that there was less of an outrage from the organized religion versus kind of you know the late 70s late late 60s 70s and 80s with the satanic panic and moral panic that we see and continue to see honestly yeah no that's a really interesting question i'm gonna give a slow answer because i'm still sort of thinking about it um one of the things that i talk about in the book that's sort of interesting about the and I, I talk especially about the women who are involved in the spiritualist movement as mediums, is that it comes at this very specific, interesting time when it's actually safe to do that, right? Because if you think about a couple centuries earlier, you know, if you go around as a woman, like talking about like the spirits are talking to you, you can see this here, listen, I'm going to close my eyes and channel the spirits. Um, every once in a while, they're, they're able to get away with like, they're a religious seer, but in most circumstances, like they're a witch, they're in trouble. You don't want to, you don't necessarily want to go around advertising that. So the Victorian spiritualism came about in this really interesting time when it became safe, you know, and I, there's a lot of potential reasons. I'll, I'll try to think of one or two in particular that I really feel strongly about, but it became sort of safe for women to explore these kind of alternative spiritualities. And there is definitely, I mean, there's definitely pushback from mainstream religion. You know, I can find kind of debates in 19th century newspapers where, you know, religious, like, you know, figures are kind of writing in and saying, well, what if you're talking to demons? What if you're talking to demons? You know, this is obviously satanic. Um, but there's not a lot of evidence of real panic when we like compared to as you're talking about like the satanic panic. So there's concerns, you know, kind of very um, extreme religious figures are definitely like raising issues. But the panic that we think of, if you think about like, you know, a really extreme version of panic would be like that, the witch hunts, you know, early modern witch hunts are like the satanic panic. The panic is kind of missing, which is funny because the Victorians loved to panic about everything. Like they were, they were anxious about just about everything you can be anxious about. Um, I definitely think something, I talk about a little bit, bit in the book, but something that uh, Victorians benefited from and again I'm thinking specifically about the women in this case they benefited from in the 19th century was that the 19th century really put its pressure but they emphasized that women were sort of this sort of moral center of of the home so there was this idea of the Victorian angel in the home the kind of pious mother who's very domestic who doesn't involve herself in worldly affairs um, and is extremely just sort of blemishless, spotless reputation. 
and very focused on being the religious moral center of the household. Um, you know, father's the head of the household, children are there being, you know, educated in this environment, and mom is kind of this angel in the home, basically. Um, this angel in the home, a lot of scholars have written extensively about sort of the pressures that this placed on women during the period to, you know, live up to this example. But it also, I think, gave them the opportunity, and Vanessa Dickerson is another academic who wrote a little bit about this. She has a book, Victorian Ghosts in the Noontide. I think it's an academic book about spiritualism and women's rights and ghost stories. Um, it also gave women, I think, the opportunity to sort of say, okay, if I'm more religious, I'm more spiritual, I'm more in tune to this religious side of life, then here's me being spiritual and then they sort of expressed it through spiritualism and you know that connection that idea of women being more religious more pious more spiritual that does not exist in you know most societies that i'm familiar with in the early modern period you know women were frequently more debauched more you know lustful more like that was kind of the cultural idea um you know, it was men who were supposed to be kind of, you know, it's very much the Adam and the Eve thing, right? Men were much more likely to be able to like control their urges. Women weren't. So that changed going into the 19th century. And then if you go forward 70 or 80 years and you look at kind of the satanic panic, at that point, we're sort of post second wave feminism. We've had increased secularization of society. And I think, again, that that kind of link of like, oh, women are more religious, women are more spiritual has kind of been broken or it doesn't exist the way that it existed in the 19th century. So I think probably why the 19th century was a weirdly safe century for women to do this. And it wasn't entirely safe and mediums of, both, you know, any gender definitely had issues and, you know, they experienced, you know, some people were prejudiced against them. Um Sometimes they were prejudiced because the people were swindling people. So that's also fair. But um, uh, I think there was uh, this, this link between women and religion was something that women spiritualists were able to use to their advantage. So that was a long, slow answer. No, <laughs> no. It, parts of it. <laughs> and it was great uh, because when you put it that way, and I've, I've thought about, I've always been fascinated by how the Victorian spiritualists we had so many prominent women figures and there was a lot of social causes that they were pursuing and women's suffrage and abolitionists, as you, you previously mentioned, but not that it was all uh, sunshine and rainbows for these women and people of color. Cause it really yeah. still wasn't, but, yeah. and you talk about that as well in the book, but in a way, it, as you just illuminated, it was kind of subversive. It's like, okay, if I'm the spiritual figure, well, uh, okay, let me own it. You know, here we yeah. are. Yeah, that yeah. that's a really, I hadn't quite thought about it in the whole subversive element before, but I think that answer really kind of speaks to that. You also, you do discuss that it's so easy when we're looking back on this bygone era, this antiquated era, era of, you know, oh, they were so simple and whatnot. But you talk about how the Victorians and then Victorian spiritualists were fascinated by new technology and actually quite eager to apply them to the unknown, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that was really interesting for me when I was thinking about the book um, is, you know, I spend a lot of time on Instagram and there are all of these like Victorian witchcraft, Victorian witchy, Victorian gothic, like aesthetic accounts and things like that. 
And, you know, as someone who works on the Victorian Gothic, and I'm really interested in neo-Victorianism as well, I'm always sort of fascinated by these accounts, because it's like, well, what do people think of when they think of Victorian Gothic, Victorian spooky, Victorian magic, like what comes to mind? And so these accounts are like fascinating for me. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting is that now if we look back and we think about like, oh, Victorian spiritualism, it's this kind of symbol of stepping away from technology in a way. It's like put away your computer, get out your quill pen, write on paper, you know, write by candlelight. Like there's this vision of stepping backward in time and turning away from technology. And that's actually really not how a lot of the Victorian spiritualists saw themselves at all. Like as soon as new technology came out, they were totally fascinated by like, okay, how do we use this to talk to the spirits? Like, you know, I mean, any technology, you know, obviously spirit photography, you know, really soon after photography was, you know, like moved mainstream. The spiritualists were interested in trying spirit photography. They were really interested as new writing technologies came out, you know, they had, well, I forget what it was called, but there was this um, machine that Ainsworth, who's another spiritualist, I don't talk about him in the book, he was interested in, it was supposed to like, it was supposed to allow you to do automatic writing, but there was like a machine that they were using. So they were always trying to come up with some kind of contraption. There's the fairy photography that was going to help them like break through to the other side, basically. And so it's really interesting to me that now when you talk about like, oh, Victorian spiritualists, you know, we have this vision um, of them as like totally disconnected from technology or if you are interested in you know these Victorian accounts it's your way of going backwards in time but they were so forward-facing in a lot of ways and it's it's funny to see the contrast yeah when you're talking about automatic writing and you're kind of going into the how-to element of it you talk about hey it's okay to use your keyboard or typewriter if you prefer because even the Victorians we're using typewriters and we're <laughs> applying that. So I, I think that that I, I really liked that element to it. But with that said, I mean, what do you think spiritualists, Victorian spiritualists would think of uh, artificial intelligence and smartphones and oh, other devices God. that we have at our disposal, which can be interesting, can be nefarious, can be easily used for uh, fraudulent purposes and deception. You know, put yourself in, in the shoes of someone that's, <laughs> you know, from the late 19th century. What do you think they would think? Oh, I think they definitely think that AI is like, they would be all in on like AI is not really an algorithm. AI is like the spirits. Like we're talking to the spirits. Like you think it's an algorithm, but it's really the spirits. I think they'd be completely like, it would absolutely be AI would be the spirits. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really wild just all of the changes since then, but I think they would still, yeah, I think they would still be interested in, in using technology in unexpected ways. And they'd have many more opportunities now because practically every way we use technology these days is an unexpected way. Um, but yeah, I think AI, it's funny, AI in a way is, you know, in a way, it's kind of a realization of some of what they thought about technology at the time, which I think when they were first using like, you know, phonographs, photographs, telegrams, you know, these new technologies, there was a sense of like, oh, we don't really know how they work, or how do you really know, like what's happening on the other side, or who you're contacting. And of course, now we have a lot more familiarity with these technologies, we understand how those old cameras worked. And, um, you know, but now we have these kind of algorithms in AI and it's like, do any of us actually, and like the people who made the AI sometimes don't really understand like what's happening, <laughs> you know, like, um, 
And so I think in some respects, it's like the AI that we have now is really, you know, just the, an extension of like the anxiety that they had or the excitement that they had about technology then. Yeah. And, you know, I've thought about these services that allow you to maintain contact with your loved one after they passed uh, via apps and AI and whatnot. It's sort of the extension is the virtual seance. It's all of this together is sort of like a black mirror meets a Victorian spiritualist. Uh, maybe maybe you would call that black scrying mirror. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have you thought about so I, I, you know, tracking the paranormal pop culture trends and kind of where we're at and everything old is new again. You know, I, I looked at sort of the rise of the unscripted, the reality TV paranormal shows in the wake of 9-11, you know, which mm. massive trauma and people kind of took to TV to perhaps vent that fascination with with the unknown, the beyond and. I was curious if that's something that you would agree with. Does that kind of fall in line with sort of the trends of spiritualism? And and if so, how do you anticipate that looking sort of in the wake of global pandemic? Yeah, I think generally from what I know about Victorian spiritualism and I talk about, you know, in the book that it sort of gets going in the United States, you know, it, they added a lot of followers right after the American Civil War when so many people had died. And then obviously World War One and the Spanish flu added a lot of people to the movement as well. I definitely think we're living in a time of, you know, 9-11, as you say, a trauma, the COVID-19 pandemic, a trauma, and also a, you know, mass casualty, you know, event in a way we had a lot of people die, uh, many more than obviously in 9-11 very quickly, uh, much more like the Spanish flu in a sense. Um, so we have obviously these kind of massive, we have tragedies, we have kind of mass death events. Um, you know, we have mass shootings now, which are their own kind of cultural trauma here in the States. Um, I also think more generally, we have the same sort of situation that the Victorians had in that, or I guess we've had it since the 19th century, but that our ways of life are changing really, really quickly. And even compared to like across much of the 20th century, um, it's so cool. Like you can feel out of date so quickly with the speed at which technology is changing. And then the speed at which we're all communicating, um, you know, it's just, you know, it's a rapid acceleration of the like technological advances that we've already seen. And I think that again, just like I was talking about with the Victorians, that's its own kind of rupture from the past in a way. It's not exactly a death, but it's its own kind of not exactly trauma, but again, kind of a rupture or a severing. And I think when that happens, people are more likely to seek unconventional forms of connection, sort of. And that some of what you see when there's the interest in the paranormal or the turn towards kind of new religious movements. Um, I mean, I honestly think five or six years ago, because I'm very interested as well in like the Wicca scene, the witchcraft scene, all of these, I'm interested in, you know, dark academia, a lot of the manifestations of, um, new religious movements, the Gothic, neo-Victorianism online. Um, if you had asked me five or six years ago, I probably would have said that I thought that these subcultures, movements, whatever, were kind of having a moment or were very on trend, but then they were sort of going to go out of fashion. I don't know that I think that anymore. I think they're just sort of accelerating. Like I think they're becoming more culturally 
prevalent and influential across time. I don't know at what point that will change, but I do think that right now they just seem to be becoming, be becoming more and more influential. And I do think a lot of it, I, not to be the person who blames technology for everything, but I think a lot of it is related to kind of the technological advances that we have now. Yeah, I I was saying like in the wake of 9-11, I, I was calling that kind of like a neo-spiritualist mo movement, and yeah. but it was still very Judeo-Christian and in, in ethic. And, and, um, and as like we saw sort of this new rise of of fascination with the occult and then and then like you know witch talk and things like that and and the wake of of COVID-19 pan pandemic it seems like there is now this this secular expansion and fascination with the the deeper realms you know combining the folklore with the the old world beliefs, pre-Christian beliefs and things like that. And in a way, I guess, I mean, that also harkens back to the Victorians because, you know, talking about fairies, but also talking about uh, elves and goblins and things like that, that people are fascinated with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you ever watch any of these paranormal TV shows, the reality TV shows or people talking about pursuing what we call ghost hunting now and think oh they may not realize it but they're definitely channeling the victorians they're definitely leaning from that borrowing from that definitely i should say like a hazard of being a victorianist and working on a victorianist dissertation right now is like i see the victorians everywhere it's like they're haunting me so i i'm constantly seeing something and i'm like that's so victorian that's victorian that's from the 19th century so it happens in like all areas of my life right now but definitely with so much of the, definitely the online scene. And then also when I hear like interviews with paranormal investigators and things like that, there are so many things that they say that I'm like, I read that in a Victorianist periodical. And I know like, it's not that they read the same periodical. They're just like part of the same movement that's been stretched over time. And like things are, you know, ideas are repeating themselves and things are cycling back around. Um, and so that's, that's always, that's, funny and sometimes eerie because as i said i see the victorians everywhere so <laughs> yeah it's like sort of spooky osmosis i guess people are picking up these things that are passed down through time but the the equipment you know has changed and now we got a lot of gadgets but uh, it you go on a, a a ghost hunter paranormal investigation and a lot of the questions are still pretty much what you know we're, we're basically recreating seances and recreating um, you know, these trance situations or whatever it is. It's just, we've got a new gloss on it. Do you, with that in mind, are there practices of sort of that Victorian spiritualism that you would like to see retired in a way in, in sort of the modern pursuit of this, mm. of this material versus things that you think you'd like to see revived or emphasized that maybe we've lost uh, lost track of. Hmm. Okay, so this is like a very kind of niche from revive like brought back or reemphasized. I'm sort of sad. I feel like there's still automatic writing. I feel like I see less automatic art in general. Like I'm I'm very interested again in the automatic art, automatic writing things. So that's something I return to a lot. But I think um you know, maybe Ouija boards have kind of stolen the show a little bit. Talking boards have kind of stolen the show. I'd like to see more of the old like pen on paper, automatic writing, automatic drawing. Maybe I'm also not, 
you know, because I've been doing the book and then doing a dissertation, I haven't been able to watch as many like cutting edge paranormal TV shows right now. So maybe they are doing it and I'm not seeing it, but I feel like I haven't seen as much of kind of the, um, like automatic drawing. I'm just in an art phase as well right now. <laughs> um, uh, as for things I'd like to see retired, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think that in general, going back to sort of the commercialization aspect, there are definitely moments and I, I'm not going to like think of one in particular, but there are moments when kind of the commercialization in certain aspects can be, um, you know, I think especially with like recent murders sometimes or things like that when people, you know, not with like 19th century murders, but I think there are moments when it can feel a little um, disrespectful or a little commercialized in certain ways, which is also definitely true in the 19th century. Um, but no immediate examples come to mind of like that right now. Um, but other than that, yeah, I don't know. Mostly I want to see the automatic art. I want someone to stay in a haunted house overnight and paint all night. I want that. <laughs> I would love that. I mean, I know some folks that are, that are mediums or at least work as mediums and are also artists and, and do that as far as the kind of the on-camera aspect to it it's unfortunate it's just that result of the entertainment industry that you know network executives a lot of times or the people that are writing the checks are like we want something new but we don't <laughs> want to be the first person to do that new thing and and really it's not new it's going back to what's uh taken place before but um yeah and and and, and i definitely it's it's amusing to me because you mentioned like Sometimes there's this leap to do some psychic media stuff in the wake of uh, a uh, murder or a horrible thing, which is quite honestly quite ghoulish uh, a lot yeah. of times. And then we think about, as you talk about in the book, Jack the Ripper, uh, that was happening then too. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking about as I was saying that, because I know how I feel when people, you know, when there's just been like a mass, you know, a, a murder or something like that. And someone's like, I know I had a vision and it's like, oh, my goodness, you know, like, um, but it was absolutely happening right from the beginning with spiritualism as well. And I talk about in the book, a woman who claimed to be channeling the spirits of the Jack the Ripper victims as the murders were happening in London, you know, which of course now looking back is just sort of fascinating because it's, you know, 140 years in the rearview mirror. But at the time, I, you know, um, obviously it would have had a very different, you know, it would have felt <laughs> very different at the time for someone to be, you know, sort of conducting these seances, like as the murders are actually ongoing and half of London is terrified. Yeah. So. And as, as, much of a spectacle as that was when they were doing that, the, the seance after the first murder, not knowing that this was about to be a string of murders, even though this person said it, um, either yeah. coincidentally or prophetically, that was also in a way, a way for people to process and deal with yeah. what was going on, you know? Um, so, so before I let you go, you mention I think pretty much at the beginning of the book, the sort of misconceptions people have of Victorianism, Victorian era, and you you talked about it here as well. It's not Jane Austen, uh, yeah. but what is some examples of pop culture, TV, movies, you know, modern literature that you think 
kind of accurately channels or represents that era, either the either Gothic literature, spiritualism, mm. Victorian era. Um, you know, like for me, right off the bat, I think Guillermo del Toro is is someone that is is a great gothic storyteller and we sometimes mistake him for a horror storyteller but is more you know gothic if anything but from your perspective yeah that's interesting yeah i think sometimes people do the best job kind of channeling the victorian gothic when they're not necessarily uh when they're sort of trying to do their own thing and it's inflected by the victorian gothic in a way um let me think for a minute um Hmm. I don't know why nothing's immediately coming to mind. I mean, something that I've always loved, but it's not really Victorian. I really enjoy the Canadian TV show Murdoch Mysteries because precisely because they do what a lot of other um, shows about that period don't do, which is they focus so much on the technological inventions and the new discoveries and things like that, which again flies in the face of we tend to think of it as so old timey. And they really, to a to to like a ridiculous point sometimes in the show, they're really focused on like every single new invention, every single inventor from that period. Um, which I really enjoy. Um let me looking at my bookshelf very quickly because I've just well you mentioned Penny Dreadful a moment ago and Penny Dreadful yeah I I mean some of the uh let's see I mean I really enjoy I enjoy Penny Dreadful I just enjoy I tend to enjoy things like Penny Dreadful that pick up on certain aspects of Victorian culture so Penny Dreadful is obviously they're a genre of it's you know Penny Dreadful, the TV series, they're named after these Penny Dreadfuls, which were these kind of gothic horror stories that were circulated for, you know, for a penny at the time. So they were Penny Dreadfuls. And they were very episodic and very kind of lurid. And Penny Dreadful, the show, kind of picks <laughs> picks up on that in a way, which I really enjoyed. Um, obviously, we've had what well, we had, The Haunting of Hill House, which is based on a Shirley Jackson series, which obviously Shirley Jackson is not gothic but she's a really excellent example of what the 20th that kind of early first half of the 20th century kind of did with the with the gothic so i think that's a really good example uh there's one other show i'm trying to think of but it's not coming to mind anyway but yeah i enjoyed penny dreadful i enjoyed um a oh there's one more that's coming to mind people have talked about the alienist before which i also like i haven't finished seeing it yeah, um there's a lot of fiction yeah. out there that seems to, it seems like, I guess maybe just the more people, you know, are educated on this material, creators are inspired and it, you know, it comes out in this work of fiction. There's a lot of, a lot of good material out there, but yeah, Haunting a Hill House, the Netflix series, even though it was modern, set in the modern time and just barely um, was a, a glancing uh, reference to Shirley Jackson's work. It still had a lot of that gothic feel to it and and a lot of kind of victorian notions of the afterlife it seemed like it emerged from it i, I think that's a great example um finally uh, how can people follow and support your work i know you're you're working on your um your phd right now but other than that uh and picking up the book how can people follow and support you um so my handle online is steel arcana 
S-T-E-E-L-E-A-R-C-A-N-A, anywhere that I have a platform. I've been a little quiet because I am trying to wrap up this dissertation and it's kind of killing me. Um, but as soon as that's done, which will hopefully be very soon, I will hopefully be more active. Um, I'm not really on Twitter these days, um, but Instagram, I want to be more active on. I have a Facebook page. And um, I want to start doing TikTok videos. I have no idea how to do short-term, short-form video, but I feel like it'll be fun to explore once I'm done with the dissertation. So hopefully in a few months time, I'll be active on any of those platforms. Well, I certainly look forward to being more active across those platforms, but also more of your writing. And just, uh, I, I have to, again, just commend you on such a, uh, a great book that is, I think, really fun for people that think they already know the material and might even know it quite well, but you're definitely going to glean uh, new information off of this. And definitely it's something that is a great introductory piece for people fascinated with the Victorian era and spiritualism. So I thank you so much for your time today. And my guest is Steele Alexandra Doris, and the book is... Spirits, Seers, and Seances, Victorian Spiritualism, Magic, and the Supernatural. And it covers a lot more ground than we even were able to get through today. So do check it out. It's published by Llewellyn, and you can get it wherever you get great books. So get it online, get it in a bookstore. You can find it out there, and I do recommend it. Meanwhile, I'm Aaron Sagers, and this has been Talking Strange. And until next time, be kind. Stay spooky and keep it weird. Talking Strange is a part of the Den of Geek Network, available wherever you listen to other podcasts. If you like what we're doing, share Talking Strange with your friends and fellow spooky nerds. And please, subscribe, rate, and leave a nice review. If you have a strange or paranormal story you would like to share with us, please email talkingstrange at denofgeek.com for a chance to have it read on a future episode. For video episodes of Talking Strange, check out twitch.tv slash denofgeektv and youtube.com slash denofgeekus. And please follow at TalkStrangePod on Twitter and at Aaron Sagers on Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon for more paranormal pop culture content. Mm-hmm.